This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what you have in front of you is a simple, actually, <laughs> depiction of a very uh, intriguing and, and, and difficult topic, which is the, the way that um, the Western intellectual tradition, and to some extent also the Eastern Christian intellectual tradition, has thought about divine simplicity. There are pre-Christian precursors in um, non-Christian thinkers, I mean, especially in Platonic and Aristotelian sources, but the th reflection on divine simplicity underwent an, an amazing set of developments and debates in ancient and medieval thinking, and it's making a comeback in debate and interest now in, I mean, in contemporary analytic philosophy, there's a kind of new set of debates about analytic, about analytic conceptions of divine simplicity or objections to it. So what I've got here is a fairly simple Thomistic schema based on Summa Theologiae question three of the first part of the Summa. So it's only one place where he goes into divine simplicity, but it's a place where you see Aquinas both engaging with the tradition and also making his own innovative um, and somewhat original contributions. So this is a Thomistic theory of divine simplicity. There are others in Aquinas and, I mean, Anselm, uh, Augustine, Scotus, and so forth. But this is a Thomistic account. And then what I'm going to do is flip the board over and look at complexity in uh, composite creatures and the way in which First, I'm going to emphasize how they are com we are composite and God is simple. And then I'm going to look at how, despite our complexity, we do somehow image the simple perfection of God in various ways. Okay, so I want to start with, on the far left of the board, the so these are four forms of composition which Aquinas says exist in us. Now, this is nothing like what you're thinking about, like if you're, if you're thinking about biological, chemical, or physical composition, except perhaps the first. These are metaphysical compositions, and metaphysics is in the Thomistic tradition and in the Aristotelian tradition, generally a science, but a science of being qua being. So it's a different way of thinking about composition than material component parts. And the first of the, then these compositions are all looked at in, uh, I think it's articles two, three, four, and uh, six of the third question of the first part of the Summa. And so I'm just going to describe them briefly and then say why we negate them when we speak about the divine nature. That is to say, they cannot be attributed to God. When we're talking about divine simplicity, what we're basically saying is God is not a metaphysically composite reality or a complex, ontologically complex reality of the kind that we typically encounter in all the things around us, including ourselves. So we're negating of God something we see antecedently and know better in ourselves. And when we negate this of God, this means we enter into a certain kind of process of learning through uh, apophaticism or negation or negative theology, by which we say, this is not true of God, and now we've learned something about him. Because we've already antecedently demonstrated that God exists in the previous question for Aquinas as the cause of all that is, insofar as it exists. So the first uh, composition it pertains to form and matter in material substances. Now, I'm not going to revisit substance ontology uh, for the sake of information. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the kind of thing that Professor Coons was doing. Uh, where you look at substantial form and then you think about how the modern scientific data can be uh, illuminated and illumine and challenge and, and perhaps in invite us to develop our notion of substantial form. But leave it to say, the presupposition here is that around us there are unified entities. We ourselves are one of them, but there are others, and perhaps some of them are very small and some of them are very massive. 
but they are unified entities that consist in material parts, we call them integral material parts, uh, of which they're composed or in which they are existent. Uh, but that the substantial unity of the reality is not simply that of a bundle or an arrangement of smaller pieces that are in relation to one another, but there is some substantial whole giving form and determination to the whole thing. So you say, that is a kangaroo, that is a tree, an oak tree, that is a human being, and all the integral parts are arranged within that material, that material whole, that whole being a substance, and the substance being a substance of a given kind, having a a natural form, so it's different to be, say, a water molecule than to be a kangaroo, than to be a star, than to be a human being, than to be an oak tree, and there being material parts that, in a certain sense, correspond to the kind of thing that we're talking about, be it an oak tree or a kangaroo, that are indicative of that nature in its materiality, you know, like the, the cells and the uh, composite chemical um, foundations that you find in different kinds of forms. Okay. All of those kinds of realities, and we don't experience anything that isn't that kind of reality through our senses, obviously, because our senses only attain to material realities. All those realities are caused uh, in and through the potency of the, of the matter for transformation, either substantially, qualitatively, qualitatively, or positionally in terms of location. So because just because we're a material form, we are capable of substantial generation corruption. We come into being and we go out of being because our matter makes us vulnerable to uh, ceasing to exist. Uh, we're subject to quantitative change, you know, like I ate too many Oreos or, um, you know, uh, I grew from the time I was two years old or, um, uh, you know, I, I had to ha have an amputation of some part of the body or whatever, but also qualitative changes. So I got better at playing the violin or um, there could be a, a change in quality of a thing changing color. I mean, quality is a very broad genre. Um, and then positionally or spatially, like I dislocated from Washington, D.C. back to my home on Sunday after the conference was finished, or the earth I'm on right now is positionally changing uh, in its relation to the sun all the time. Um, so there's ways in which just because one is a material form, one is subject to being caused under an aspect, let's just say these last three properties or accidents, or substantially. And insofar as we're being caused, we're not the uh, font of all existence. Something of our existence is uh, given to us or we're, de we're developmentally um, dependent and effectuated in being. We're caused in being by others. We're dependent for the kind of thing we are upon the effects, the effects and actions of others. So we're not definitely not the first cause of being. But if there is a first cause of being, giving being to everything else, which is the word we use, God, to we use the word God to denote this mystery or philosophical mystery of something that's giving existence to all things. All of this cannot be ascribed to it because it's not receiving its being from others substantially, quantitatively, qualitatively, or positionally. It's not dependent because we've already established that if God exists, God is the giver of existence to all things. Who is, it's a unilateral relationship. God's giving being. He's not receiving it. So if God exists, he's not a substantial form existing in a material body, so God is not a material being composite of form and matter. So all the stuff that we have around us is not God, and God is not like the stuff we have around us or the stuff we are, because he's not a substantial form that's composite of matter, com composed of form and matter. And he's not causally dependent on material actions. Right? So he wouldn't come under the field of study of any of the observational modern, modern sciences 
just insofar as they all have some reliance on quantitative measurements and quantitative sensate aspects of reality. So no scientist is going to find him or disprove that he exists or prove that he exists through observational methods because he's the one giving substantial forms existence that are material forms. He's not one of those material forms. And furthermore, everything we abstract, you know, like when we come to know what a man is or a kangaroo or a water molecule, we abstract from uh, intellectually abstracted knowledge of that from uh, material forms. So we don't have that kind of abstract knowledge of God. So now that also suggests just, you know, for the philosopher in us, epistemologically, when we start to talk about God and his nature, we're going to have to make a lot of qualifications because he's not a physical material being of the kind we normally encounter. You might say already we're encountering enormous problems about talking about God because he's not a, ma a material form. So we don't know him the same way we know everything else, and he's not observable in the way everything else is observable. Second composition is that of an individual in an essence. This can be handled a little simpler, and I'm not going to get into the metaphysics of individuation, which is a huge topic and it's vexing topic. Um, what is it that makes you qua individual different from another human being qua individual, even though you have the same nature? Let's just observe the distinction as a metaphysical composition in us. If you were to stand up and say, behold, dear friends in this room, I am human nature. And when I die, human nature dies with me. All right now, unfortunately, because we live in a metaphysically benighted age, there isn't a, psycho a psychotherapeutic center to take you to for metaphysical error. <laughs> but I mean, this would be a rather serious metaphysical sickness in your mind that you thought you were human nature. I mean, it would be beautiful because it would show you had at least enough metaphysical knowledge in this metaphysically benighted era to still have like the power to generate a, a wonderful metaphysical folly. Um, uh, but, it, you know, in fact, it, it would be an, an error because human nature is individuated in all of us and all of us carry forth human nature with us. Uh, so this is a funny thing about the world is that there are things that have the same nature. I mean, I'm presuming it, not arguing it, but say you're in um, Southern California and you're driving and there's just like, fields and fields and fields of orange trees. Uh, I mean, all of those trees are fundamentally the same natural kind of thing. The expert on the biology of the orange tree who's helping protect the grove from all the menacing threats has intelligent knowledge of universal um, laws about the, the na nature of that species of orange tree and how to protect it. Uh, but each individual is a singular instantiation of the orange tree. And you have been putting things on charts about, um, you know, RNA, DNA, protein, you know, so molecules, natures. And all that. These only work because we can go out and find a whole bunch of individuals who fit into these categories, whether we're talking about fragments of beings or whole substances, you know. So we do have this knowledge of natural kinds that corresponds to reality because there are natural kinds of things out there, be they kangaroos or water molecules or whatnot, orange trees. But no one of them is simply equivalent to uh, the totality of what is found uh, in that natural kind because there are many instantiated individuals of that kind, many orange trees, many human beings. Now, uh, Aquinas argues, and I won't present the argument to you, but Aquinas argues that there simply cannot be multiple gods. God is not one of, one of uh, many kinds. Only God has the divine nature. Another way to say it is only God is God. 
because actually God is a nature term rather than an individuation term like a name like Joseph or Andrew. So only um, the, the one who gives being to all things has the nature that is proper to him. Uh, just to just to point towards troubles that would arise if you make if you decline that um, if you had three gods, three individuals who had together combined their powers to create the world, each of them would have to be differentiated individually by certain traits, qualities, or properties that the other two wouldn't have, and because they would be ontologically first in all reality, they would be interdependent, but none of them would be able to account for the perfections in the other two. So each of them would have, in some sense, perfections not caused by the other two, and the other two would have perfections that were um, independent. Yeah, every, each of them would have perfections that are independent of the others, and none of them could account for the causation in being of the totality of what existed. And yet each of them would be independent of one another. It, you can begin from that to generate arguments that you wouldn't have yet reached a first cause, because there would be... Um, there would be things derived from the totality of their cooperation that couldn't be explained sufficiently by any one of them and that the, the totality wouldn't um, allow you to explain uh, rightly without reference to something giving them all being. Um, and I'm not going to you know, go through the argument here, but the idea is basically you can't have three great angels or three distinct persons of the Trinity who are each distinct gods. So there's only one who has the fullness of being, and just because he has the fullness of being, who gives being to all others, uh, possesses all the qualities and powers uh, uh, requisite or possible for the giving of being to all others. And there's therefore only one God. There's only one who is individually, uh, who individually possesses the plenitude of the divine nature. So that's just an indication of an argument. It's not a presentation argument. The third is... Uh, the famous distinction of essence and existence, which Aquinas believes obtains in us, that's more, you might say, his original contribution to uh, classical Western philosophy and is perhaps one of his most characteristic and original theses and also one of the most powerful. So Aquinas holds that <clears throat> essence, what it is essentially to be a thing, is in a certain sense the form matter composite. You can see I put essence here, at least in us. What, what does that mean? So if I say to you, what is, it, what is it essentially to be a human being? And we're just presupposing that we have a spiritual soul that's the form of the body. We're not trying to prove that right now. Um, is it essential to you to have a spiritual soul if you are a rational, personal animal? Yes, it is. Is it essential to you to have a physical body? Well, yes, indeed, it is also essential. So you need both your form and your matter to be uh, a complete human being, a complete rational animal, a personal animal. Um, and without your, the matter of the body, you would not be a complete human being. So you wouldn't be essentially human. You'd only have an important aspect. The spiritual soul alone without the body is a very important formal aspect of the human person, but not the complete human person. So essence describes that complete form matter composite considered abstractly as a totality of what it is integral to a nature, and you could you could distribute you could use this term to also relate to say a kangaroo, which has we think Thomas think you know a principle of life, an organizational principle of life. I'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. That is um, 
non-subsistent after death, so corrupted at the death of the kangaroo, its soul doesn't survive its death, but that is a kind of living principle of internal organization of all the material parts and all the sensate operations. And that uh, is essential to what a kangaroo is. So just having a dead kangaroo is not the same thing as having a living kangaroo. When you have the dead kangaroo, you don't have something essentially kangaroo-ish. You have to have it be alive for it to be essentially uh, a kangaroo. And you could, you know, use this form matter notion at multiple levels of reality, including in non-living things. Okay, so existence, unlike essence, is something absolutely singular in each of us that can be thought of by uh, appealing to the notion of act and potency. All of us have what it is to be essentially human in us, uh, a living soul animating material potential, material corporeal, material uh, the potency of, of our corporeal matter. We are soul, body, form, matter, composites, essentially. But also, each of us can exist or not exist. We can be or not be. Uh, and so that's a kind of a radical division in us between um, actually being and pot potentially being. There was a time when we were not. There is a time we will not be, at least not in the way we are now. And so what we are essentially can be or not be. And this is true of everything else we see around us in the universe. Everything around us, including ourselves, exists. This singularity of existence, which Aquinas calls the actus sindi, the act of being, is what radically separates us from all others and actuates our essence. We are, an, when we say actuates our essence, I mean the human nature in you or the human nature in I it's actuated in its singularity of existence by some kind of principle of being. There is a radical act of being in each of us in virtue of which we are this human being here actually existing. Now, where the, how I say is in us, where it comes from, is it just because we're a, a material animal that exists now? And those are all interesting questions, but I'm not looking at the causes of existence. I'm just noting that each of us radically exists in our singularity. And um, this is what makes us distinct qua individual, well, qua, uh, yeah, this is a source of our individual instantiation in uh, our natural kind. So you're radically distinct from all other human animals, radically distinct from all other realities in virtue of your act of being, your unique existence. Existence is a really interesting puzzle and mystery, and Aquinas is getting at the mystery of existence through the notion of essence, uh, sorry, essay, as the actus ascendi, the act of existing of the given individual essence. Uh, one way that's helpful to think about this is in terms of two common ecumenisms. I mean, I use ecumenism here metaphorically. An ecumenism of essence and ecumenism of existence. So because we have a human essence, we are essentially the same kind of thing as all other human beings. But we are not in ontological communion with the kangaroos, the stars, the aardvarks, and the oak trees, because they are only in communion with each other through the ecumenism of essence and not in communion with us. Each essential kind shares in something common to all the others and is, you might say, separated from essences of other kinds. But what's weird and interesting about existence is it's the ba most basic communion that puts us in an ecumenism of essay with everything that exists. 
I mean, this is weird, but on one level, exist your existence separates you out and in, in an individual way from everything else. I mean, your existence is different than that of everybody else. You don't walk in front of the car on Fifth Avenue and say, oh, it doesn't matter. My existence is part of the whole, you know. Um, you preserve your existence because it's only it's only yours, and if you don't take care of it, it will cease to be. And you have a native inst natural instinct to preserve it. Um, but actually, that individual existence also that's proper to you also means that you have by analogy something in common, not just with all of the human beings, but with the aardvark, the star, the tree, uh, and the water molecule, and whatever else. Because all of that stuff exists. Existence penetrates everything. So it radically singularizes and, you might say, separates everything from everything else. But it also is communal. Aquinas talks about esse commune, common existence proper to all things, which is not the same thing as a kind of pantheistic merger of all things into things, a kind of diluted soup where you can't tell what anything is. We, we do sharpen sharpen and uh, grasp onto in sharp ways singulars like the intellect focuses and grasps individual realities distinct from other individual realities you have to study the universe by making distinctions but in and through all those distinct beings we grasp there's something in common which is common existence deeply mysterious okay so if you're not essentially your existence if you receive existence or have existence and can be or not be then the short version of the story is you don't cause yourself to exist. And everything around us is like this. It's not causing itself to exist. It receives existence. It has come into being. It will go out of being. And it depends for its being on a whole host of factors, including the rest of the physical universe and lots of other causes. But it's not like you can just point at one thing, like the sun. Say, I exist because the sun exists. It produces all my oxygen, light, food, and, uh, and my well-being Everything that gives me existence is in the sun, and the sun will always be. Everything we can point at of that kind is itself derivative, downhill, downstream in being from something giving everything else existence. So if there is something giving everything else existence, and you can imagine who that is, then that reality is not derivative in existence. In fact, it must, Aquinas would say, exist by nature or exist in virtue of its essence, of its essential kind. So God is essentially to be, or essay, the act of existing. And that's very mysterious. Like that, that sounds necessary to say, but then what it means is another mm, deep metaphysical puzzle, but one you spend your life thinking about. I mean, God must exist because he has the fullness of whatever existence is. And we don't really know what God is. I mean, we know we can say these things of God and they help us know something of God, but they also make God highly, I mean, they make him more incomprehensible in some sense than anything else around us because God has existence in its plenitude and doesn't receive his existence from anything else and is diffusing existence to all other things. He's not composite in the way we are. And the last composition is that of substance and accident. And I'm just going to make this simple by talking about substance and operation or activity, which is one of the accidents. So there's nothing quantitative in God. So we don't need to worry about whether there's a composition of substance and quantity in God. Because, okay, so substance and accidents composition, right? Now, the same person who a little while ago was very, very enthusiastic on the second distinction said, I am human nature, has now been chastened, especially with the threats of um, 
psychiatric interrogation about metaphysical error. And now they've decided they're going to go the other direction and acquire great metaphysical humility. And they set up saying, I am my quantity. I am quantity. Well, yeah, I mean, this is also another reason for the, for the, the need for the clinic. The, um, the, the person is also has, they have a quantity, and it's a very important feature of their being. They also have qualities, right? Like the path possibly speaking out in the name of quantitative, uh, the primacy of quantity, which is a quality of their, of their person uh, or their capacity to enunciate truth. Um, they have relationships. They stem from parents. They have habits of being, right? So there's other features of their being, and somehow they're mysteriously one, and that's what we try to talk about when we talk about the substance, that substrate an individual being in its unity, the human being in this case, that has that possesses all these characteristics like quantity, quality, relations, habits, and operations. Now, that's not quantitative, but we can say qualitative things of God, which I won't try to prove, but we can say things eventually down the line. Aquinas will do this subsequently in the Summa of saying God's qualitative in that God is wise or God is good or God is intelligent. However, there's no act potency composition in God wherein God becomes progressively more perfect in operation. You and I try to become more understanding. We try to grow in knowledge. We try to grow in our qualities, our virtues, our professionalism, our human affability. Uh, we try to get better at the arts. We try to develop better PowerPoint presentations. At least some people have made it that far. Um, we, you know, we, we, we can grow in basically the intellectual virtues, the artistic virtues, and the ethical virtues, and the theological virtues, actually, as well, faith, hope, and charity. But if God has the plenitude of existence and it has the perfection of the fullness of being, whatever that is, he's not undergoing evolutionary mutation or development in view of higher and better states. He's not developing habits of being by which he operates better at the intellectual, artistic, or ethical level. He's not developing his goodness through experimentation by engaging with human, the human race and trying to figure out as he goes how to make ethical progress. We do, he doesn't. So there's not a, um, a, a set of qualitative actuations of God's powers over time, no act potency composition. And so there is some kind of identification of what God's substance, Aquinas argues, of God's substance and God's operation. You might say it this way, God just is his goodness. God just is his wisdom. God just is his knowledge. God just is his love. Now, there's plenty of analytic philosophers who want to get off the metro at this stop and say, um, this, doesn't, this now sounds like you're reifying abstract qualities about God and you're making all kinds of logical and metaphysical errors and there's like huge literature about that which i won't go into but they're wrong they're wrong these are this, this is a very good way of speaking um but it also requires another move of apophaticism because when we say god is subsistent wisdom and love and god is subsistent goodness and justice and so forth obviously the logical entailment of that is as aquinas says that in some sense god's wisdom justice uh, uh, love and goodness are all identical. God is God's eternity, God's power. All these are words that truly denote what God is, and yet what they denote in God is somehow mysteriously, numinously, and transcendently one and identical. Right, so we're, we really can denote God through a myriad of names. Those myriad of names really denote what God is, and yet what God is 
as indicated through those myriad of names, is somehow simpler and non-composite than anything we can experience in our immediate world because we are downstream in being and we are complex. We become good, we become wise, we become just, we become loving. God doesn't have this composite way of existing. He's simpler, he's eternally enduring as wisdom, goodness, justice, power, and so forth. So he just is and has these features of being as proper to what God is. At the term of this reflection, you don't have to then say, oh, um, now I am an expert in God. I know what God is. Actually, you can do sort of the opposite and say, I've learned a, a great deal about what God is not. And my unlearning has made me um, more responsible in admiring the incomprehensible transcendence of God and his perfection. Um, now, I mean, I'm just going through really fast postcard version, four articles in one question of Aquinas about God. He has like you know, 27 questions, many articles in each question. And in going through them, you, you grow in habitual thinking about God from multiple angles. So it's, it's not a, a, a mud clay hut. It's a cathedral. And we're just looking at one of the main columns. And I'm a tour guide just showing you some aspects of the columns real fast. So, you, you know, this is why there is a, like a, a science of God in it. You spend time on it. Now I'm going to look at creatures. Creatures are more complex, as we've noted, but I want to look at ways they imitate the perfection of God. Now, I've just used another word, which is perfection. God's not only simple, God's also perfect. And, um, but they go together. So I'm just going to, kind of in, I'm going to kind of allude to this. Let's start at the bottom of the hierarchy. I'm, I'm talking about a hierarchy of being. It's a very controversial claim. But uh, Catholics, I think, can't get out of believing in a hierarchy of being. And I also think it's just uh, metaphysically reasonable. But we won't worry about that. I'm just alerting you to the fact that I'm presuming there's a hierarchy of being. At the base of it are physical non-living beings. Physical non-living beings. And I was talking with some of you about the Webb telescope and saying how it just, you know, is astonishing to think about the quantitative and... Uh, I mean, just the massiveness of the universe. And then as one of you pointed out to me, but then also the, the human being is also like this massive cosmos or cathedral of uh, particles and, and uh, um, you know, atoms. And there's, um, it's quite mysterious how, how when God got into creating quantity, he was serious. I mean, he, <laughs> he invested, he invested. And uh, uh, what's amazing is that we have a mind that can kind of begin to understand something about it. But basically, at least this very modest set of claims can be made. In the physical non-living world, we see a, a, a massive array of quantitative uh, physical realities that are uh, juxtaposed in an exterior way. There's an exterior juxtaposition of parts. Now, when I say exterior, I mean there's something like substantial distinction between them. They are really distinct from one another and exterior. They are not one another in their very being, and they're distinct from each other and juxtaposed, and they interrelate, mix together. And then there's mutual actions and passions by which the cosmos evolves or changes or stays in st stable states in certain areas. So um, maybe one of the ways that, I mean, Aquinas does speculate, he's medieval, he doesn't have all the cosmic information we have, but he, he does speculate in the Summa Contra Gentiles, I believe, in uh, the third book, that the, the massive character of the universe. So every, every physical reality, just because it's material, is limited, delimited in its scope of its being by matter and has a kind of necessary finitude. 
everything material has is a kind of implicit finitude because matter implies the potency for transformation and this capacity for further actuation, the capacity for further perfectioning. So it's always a limiting, uh, it, it suggests possibility, but also suggests limitation by nature. Anything material has limitation built into it, baked into it, you might say. But if God is not material and is delimited, is not delimited by matter, and it has the fullness of being, then God is in fact infinite, which I haven't talked about. But if God's infinite and all material things are very, very finite, then one way that the physical world could mirror or image the infinite perfection of God is through there being a superabundance of physical realities that are each finite, and that they be very uh, that there be a multitude not only of quantities but also of, quanti- of qualities. So maybe the incredible multitude and array of of qual- quantitative uh, physical uh, physical bodies and aspects and parts of physical bodies in their quantitative and qualitative array are something like an iconostasis of the infinity of God, a kind of image of the infinity of God that both reveals His infinite power and wisdom and goodness and conceals it. Because God is obviously not a physical body, but he can manifest something of his infinite mystery and the perfection of his being through the splendiferous magnitude of the multiplicity and complexity uh, uh, quantitatively and qualitatively of the vast physical universe in its um, exterior juxtapositional parts, their mutual actions and passions, which then lead to a cosmic history and developmental evolutionary world. It's It's a thought experiment. I think it has some potential. Moving up the chain of hierarchy of being, you have physical living beings without knowledge, vegetative life. I mean, plants, bacteria, things like that. There are in them the organic, there is in them the organic arrangement of parts, the interior organic arrangement of parts. So as opposed to in exterior, you have interior organic arrangement of parts, basically living organs. I mean, organs that are enlivened and that are instruments of the the life processes. What are these life processes? Nutrition, growth, self-repair, and reproduction. So now you have something we can begin to see emerge. I'm using the word emergence self-consciously. That is a form of interiority. Plants have an interiority that the non-living cosmos doesn't because they bring nutrients into themselves and they arrange those nutrients organically in view of the processes of growth, self-repair, and reproduction. And so you start to see in vegetative life the presence in the universe of a form of organic interiority that does not entail knowledge, but that does um, terminate in substantial reproduction of like kind. So non-living things cannot reproduce their like kind, but vegetative living things can reproduce their like kind. And Aristotle says famously they imitate the eternity of God by um, Uh, reproducing their own nature in others. If there's a history of natures, which I do believe, of course, there is, uh, you know, a long evolutionary history of 4 billion years, this doesn't change, I think, the the basic claim here, which is that even though essences have natures, they still um, reproduce themselves through organic processes, and this is something non-living things can't do. And there's a certain poor but real imitation of the eternity and perfection of God going on in vegetative life, that it's like, it's somehow more like God. It, in this respect, it's more like God than non-living things, in that you have the, the preservation of natural kind over successive generations through organic processes of the substantial tra- reproduction of the, of the same kind of thing. 
without knowledge. In animals, you have sensate knowledge and appetite, physical living beings with sensate knowledge and appetite, and they have vegetative powers, so they, you know, they have all these, they can do these same things, nutrition, growth, repair, and reproduction. But in addition, they have sensate knowledge and appetite. And I mean, if you want to broadly use the word, you can say they also have sensate knowledge and love. Animals love certain things and they detest other things. I mean, they love food and they, they love reproduction in a very animalistic way that's not very, you know, you know ignoble or noble, but just basically uh, instinctual. And um, they, they aim at certain things. They want to preserve their life. Uh, they get angry when they're, they're young or threatened. I mean, some of the intelligent ones are. Do and so there's there's degrees of sensate knowledge and appetite from the oyster up to the dolphin, but you see uh, or whoever else you want to put in that category the the great apes or the or the some of the pigs. So there's there's some very smart animals, but um, and then there's some very dumb animals like oysters. Um, but the but these but what we have here is interiority now in which something of another can be brought into the self. So like the eagle flying can see, really see the fish or the muskrat uh, and can dive. And it has real knowledge of that other reality. It employs it in view of um, substantial, in, in view basically of these of nutrition, growth, repair, and reproduction. But now what you have is you have the interiority of knowledge being employed in the service of the substantial generation of like kind, which is interesting. That makes a lot more sense, and I haven't brought the Trinity into this, but once you think about this in light of the Trinity, it's, it's actually more interesting because you're seeing something like a, a material imitation of the eternal generation of the word. But I won't go into that. Um, then you have physical, sensate, intellectual beings who have the al genuine alterity of knowledge and love. By alterity, I mean you can actually know the other qua other. Um, so you don't just read off the information of the other as uh, potentially helping you with nutrition uh, or um, you know, reproduction or self-repair or whatever, or, or being dangerous. But you, you can actually understand the other in the other's existence. What's so weird about intellect is it can know essay. It can know what exists uh, and essence. I mean, we can actually know each other's existence qua other existence and think about existence. We're capable of knowledge of alterity, the, the existence that's individual in each one, and the nature that's perhaps our own or that which is alien to us. We study other natures or parts of natures. So this intellectual animal can also love the personal features of others and all other realities in their own way and measure and can have a love of alterity. We can love other realities for what they are. We can love artistic realities. Uh, we can love the humanity we find in artistic realities. We can love other human beings for their own sake and their qualities and enjoy being with them. Um, so this capacity to know and love what is other than ourselves is distinct in us as animals as far as we can tell. And at least so I think. And um, Aristotle says the intellect is in a way all things. But so then it follows that we can in a certain sense love all things. Uh, Francis of Assisi's hymn to the universe uh, as giving glory to God is in a way philosophically defensible qua just from the point of view of metaphysics. I mean, we can admire all that God has made and love all the things that God has made, admire them, 
Um, but we also can even know and love something of God based on the kind of nature we have. And um, then we can also choose as animals capable of substantial reproduction of the personal commun communication of nature, not just through instinct, but through decision and rational choice uh, that terminates in responsibility for new human life. In other words, we're basically capable of familial life, which is the personal communion of human beings in knowledge and love that leads reasonably and freely to the generation of children who are rational, personal animals who we can care for and educate uh, interpersonally. Uh, and that's something very distinct to the human being that is different from the other animals and different from the angels. And that again has Trinitarian implications about uh, internal communication of nature of between persons. And finally, if angels exist, angels have no capacity for physical transmission of their nature because they're not animals, but they do have a higher form of purely immaterial knowledge and love. They're magnificent contemplatives and underst they understand the world much more deeply than we do. And they're capable of corresponding forms of, of love of God and of creation. Uh, but they're also singular in their essences, according to Aquinas, that's a disputed qu question, but he thinks each angel is its own species. So they're, they're, there's a different kind of metaphysical solidarity and metaphysical solitude the angels have vis-a-vis -vis one another and vis-a-vis -vis us. So there's um, the idea here then of complexity could be one in which there emerges uh, in some way, historically, I'm now moving into a kind of modern framework of thinking, uh, you know, going back to the old 13.8 billion years of counting, and, uh, you know, that you could have a kind of uh, initial emergence of a vast universe of quanti quantitatively and qualitatively vast and complex, exteriorly juxtaposed realities that have a whole range of mutual actions and passions uh, that are present among them, and that eventually there emerges in this universe physical living beings without knowledge, or love, obviously single-celled bacteria in the common um, account. And uh, through developmental processes, these would eventually grow in perfection in terms of developing interior organic arrangements of parts, operations of nutrition, growth, repair, and reproduction. And eventually there would emerge, uh, in ways that I don't know anything about, but people try to figure out, forms that have interior operations of, uh, well, exterior senses and an interior sense knowledge, memory, and imagination and so forth in the higher animals. And over time, you would see, um, you know, the various ways that uh, animal life develops sensate knowledge, employs sensate knowledge and appetite in a, a myriad of ways in the service of the vegetative powers through imminent operations of, of knowledge and appetite in view of substantial reproduction, the survival of the fittest and so forth. And then we would talk about the historical emergence of distinctively rational free human beings and the cultural artifacts that we would maybe imagine we could we could find through paleoontology that manifest um, that manifest those uh, pres the presence of those powers in human beings. We won't speculate today about how the angels are involved in all this. Um, maybe they're just watching it all with great amusement. Maybe they're pushing a couple of spheres around. And um, then there's a Last question, which is, if this is a complex world, how does the whole reflect something of God? Uh, because, I mean, we've 
illustrated the complexity, but then the complexity has a certain, not simplicity, but totality. And that wholeness is in its own way indicative of it all coming from and being governed by one mind or one transcendent providence. Um, when you have a system of multiples, you, you know, there is a unity to it, but since nothing in the whole unity is governing the whole, it points towards the possibility or question of how God is you know, governing it. Um, and, you know, obviously, if you do employ the notion of a hierarchy of being, you can start to see how lower things exist in some sense for the higher things. But you should be careful about it, too, because the lower things ultimately exist for the same reasons the higher things just say for God. So, in some sense, uh, if God doesn't have to give being to things, but he does out of, you might say, the infusion of his goodness, and out of the, the mystery of his own contemplation of his own wisdom and power, that in some sense the universe exists for God, and you can't trash the universe just because you think the universe exists for yourself rather than God. However, you can also say that the universe exists according to a kind of hierarchical scale in which the rational animal has a privileged central place, you know. So, um, and then just last thing, we would want to say somehow that um, when you get the soul, the intellectual and voluntary capacities for alterity through knowledge and love that's immaterial and kind, you need to explain that through um, appeal to an immaterial principle. So however you want to tell this story about emergence, uh, the Catholic Church and I think sound philosophy both hold rightly that the soul, the spiritual soul, the human being that subsists after death cannot be derived from the parents but involves some new individual creation of God in the case of each rational animal. So that's like a kind of overview of, you know, Thomistic thoughts, thoughts about the simplicity of God and the complexity of creation. And uh, I should open the floor, I think, for questions. So I'm wondering if you could, if anyone's made the move of trying to draw a distinction between complexity and composition, and holding that maybe God can be complex but not composite, or if that even makes sense within Thomistic framework. Well, I think Aquinas would deny that God's complex, in essence, because he's non-composite. But I'm using, I'm trying to use, <clears throat> I think, more his terminology. We'd have to get into what you mean by complex, but if you mean something like the Neoplatonist arrangement of um, powers in God or the emanations in God, Aquinas is going to keep some notion of eternal emanation of the of the distinct persons, of the Trinitarian persons in God, while holding for a very robust theory of divine simplicity of essence by arguing that in the eternal emanation of the word from the Father and the eternal emanation or spiration of the Spirit from the Father and the Son, the totality of the divine essence is communicated in each case so that the Father in the eternal generation of his word contrib uh, communicates the plenitude of the divine essence in its simplicity to the Son and the Father and the Son communicate the plenitude of the divine essence to the Holy Spirit so that all that's in the Father's in the Son, and all that's in the Father and the Son's in the Holy Spirit. And then by perichoresis or mutual indwelling, each of the persons possesses in plenitude what is present in the other. So each is the one God. So he has a way of 
using emanation language, it's a little different than Bonaventure in this respect, uh, that's non-hierarchical. There's no hierarchy in God, but there is real distinction. That distinction is not ontologically complex. It does not imply the compositions of creatures, but it does allow one to affirm really distinct emanation, distinct persons in emanational life in God without metaphysical composition. On the first side of the board, uh, those you, you gave four different kinds of composite, metaphysical composition. And I was wondering if you could explain the use of the word composition in a metaphysical sense, because obviously the first sense in a physical composition, you have two pre-existing things that are united in some way, but with these, it seems more like one of the principles pre-exists and the other comes to be in the union. For example, this form with with this matter in the first. So what sort of composition is this? Okay, so uh, yes, great question. They're not composite in the sense that one comes to be from the other or one comes to be and then the other one exists and the other comes to exist. They both exist in any given substantial individual. And they're not merely logically distinct. They're really distinct from one another. There's a real distinction. But there's not a, it's not a quantitative composition. It's not a composition of quantitative parts juxtaposed to one another. Like the component parts of my body being my lungs and my heart, my liver. Those are obviously manifestly organic and quantitatively composite realities. But the form matter composite is to say that it's like, I mean, we're, this, is the, this is a problem about when you're trained in the modern sciences, are, and which, I mean, in a way, I think we all are, as our primary way of thinking about objective reality. And then you start to move into metaphysics, is that there's compositions in reality, so metaphysicians claim, that are um, not uh, quantitative in kind, but deeper. I mean, that's a way of putting it. It's deeper in reality. Like our existence is never is something we'll never be able to measure quantitatively and not and we cannot say that all that is in us that exists in us is merely quantitative there are qualitative features or relational features of reality that cannot be reduced to quantitative juxtaposition right so existence and essence are really distinct in us but they're not exterior to one another so these are i mean another way to think about it that's just another comparison like is the intellect, the immaterial intellect, or my thoughts, my intellectual ideas, exterior to my will, or are they interior to them? So, I mean, Thomas posited a real distinction of intellect and will. But, but my mind is in my, I mean, my willing follows from my thinking, my, my understanding. And my understanding is moved by my will. So what do I want to think about today? I guess I'll go to this lecture on divine simplicity. So, you know, I, I want to, yeah, I want to be there. So, so the will moves the intellect, the intellect moves the will by a certain kind of interiority that's not that of um, organic, physical interiority in a living thing, a normal kind of interiority. These are like that. There's some deep um, mutual – so, I mean, what, what the classic claims are that none of these things can exist without both these sets of principles. But these principles are really distinct. Like I can't exist without my soul and my body. But my soul and my body are really distinct. That's a good way to begin to think about it. So the form and matter are both composite principles of the substantial form. And the individual essence uh, applies to us. There's some real distinction between, you know, the birthmark on the human being by which you can tell its individuation versus the nature it has. But that's a different kind of composition than 
existence and essence and substance and accident. Anyway, I think you have to get into metaphysics to kind of feel out whether you think these things are just arbitrary constructions of reason or they actually obtain in the reality. Um, so I wanted to know, Father Thomas, if, um, so in what way can we know the simplicity of God before the beatific vision? And how does that change, if, if at all, um, when attaining to it? Well, we know we infer it. I mean, look, I should say, let me be careful here. The Catholic Church has some dogmatic allusion in its dogmatic teachings, has some allusions to divine simplicity, but there's a lot of theories of divine simplicity. So all this stuff here is not like the Catholic dogma. This is a Thomistic reflection on a Catholic teaching on God. Uh, I mean, the minimum, I think, probably is from the dogmatic point of view, sort of superficial teachings of the Catholic Church, that you know the divine essence is not a physical body. If you just believe that, you can pass the orthodoxy test, you know. <laughs> so none of this is, I'm not trying to impose this, I don't want Catholics saying, oh, I have to believe all this stuff, I can't believe all this stuff, so I can't be Catholic. Okay. So, you know, I, the, um, you know, the idea here is that there, if we try to think about how God is unlike us, we can arrive at, in this life, a certain set of judgments that are true, that obtain, that are indicative of reality as it is, the reality of God as God is in God's self. If you look at uh, question 13, article 2, prima, the prima parts, question 13, article 2, so it's 10 questions later, uh, Aquinas says, do these predications we make of God by analogy indicate God's very substance and life in himself? And he argues there that they do. But he also says it's kind of at a great distance. But people who work in chem biochemistry and, and, phys and particle physics you should be okay with this. You're like looking at little stuff that you can't really see and you're trying to indicate things and you try to make true judgments through experiments about things that you infer through the medium of things you know better and then you try to say, well, we really do know those things. And I don't have to wait till the beatific vision to talk about like neutrons, protons, electrons. Now, some of you may be skeptics about those little bits of matter, but like they do indicate something about at least the energy emitted when you split an atom or something like that. So you're doing it too. So don't like, don't take after me for doing it. You're just doing it on very small stuff and I'm doing it on the creator. Okay. I'm, I'm, um, I went back to the idea of the soul for a minute because I, I understand the, I think I understand that the, you know, the, the soul is the, the form of the soul. And you said that when the animal, the kangaroo, it dies, it crops, and the soul goes away. And yet, I sort of think of the Catholic thing as our soul does not actually corrupt. Correct. Absolutely. So in your hierarchy, it seems to me that that's the distinction, that our we, we have our form and we have our soul. But I think it's, it's Aquinas now... It, so, and our soul won't corrupt, and that's what makes us so distinct from everything below your hierarchy. Yes. And is the origin of the word soul related to that? Um, yeah, well, now that last question is a hard question. Suke has a lot of uses in ancient Greek pre-Christian um, terminology, but I think, I mean, I think it, they think that there's some kind of vital force in living things Aristotle wants to use it self-consciously in a broad way. Uh, and Aquinas wants to maintain that. So, yeah, I didn't emphasize strongly the distinct, the like radical 
distinctiveness of the subsistent spiritual soul of man created individually by God in the embryo or in the you know early life of the newly conceived human being that then informs the matter and the, the animality such that we develop as personal animals that have spiritual powers of intellect and will that have immaterial features those immaterial features of which are the seed of our personality and which is not corrupted at death as the animal in us dies so that there is something in us that's truly personalistic that subsists after death, which is both a claim of perennial scholastic philosophical traditions like Thomism, many arguments for the immaterialized soul and subsistence after death in Aquinas, but among other scholastics, and it's the teaching of the Catholic Church, and it's got a clear foundation in the New Testament scriptural teaching. But what if, if you fit that into this whole thing, it means the human being becomes the bridge between the invisible and the visible. So we're the only visible reality capable of the invisible, and we're the only capable in, in the alterity of knowledge and love, and we're the only uh, immaterial and invisible reality, to, so to speak, that's also corporeal and animal and can you know, live in the visible world. So there's something proto-sacramental about us. We're, we are, in a certain way, signs and instruments of spiritual life in the physical world, and we can ennoble the physical world through um, our speculative study of it, through art, art through uh, ethical life, through political life, we can spiritualize the world. And I think the modern sciences are one of the most obvious places that the, the nobility of the human animal is manifest because the human animal is using its animal powers of observation of the senses to go inferentially much further in intellectual analysis to study the structure of matter and living forms and to you know, ennoble the universe through the scientific study of that physical universe God's created. Including human dignity. because Yeah, human dignity. I think dignitas is actually a medieval concept. It's all through the scholastics, and they want to figure out what it is. I think it's a quality that pertains to the soul insofar as it's endowed with inalienable features of knowledge and love. And so, like, why, just take an example, why is, uh, we can define what torture, you know, we can argue about what torture is, but let's just say, like, you know, serious forms of torture that are uncontroversial, like electroshocking, you know, person hanging on a chain and trying to, you know, torture them because they did something the government doesn't like. You know, serious torture can be argued to be intrinsically evil because it's acting directly on the animal power in such a way as to indignify, or that is to say, render impotent the powers of reason and free will for any uh, acceptable virtuous good. As where internment doesn't necessarily do that, because we can in, we can put someone in prison uh, for a, a wealth of reasons to try to prevent them from vicious activity, or to, and also rehabilitate them, punish them for vicious activity, and rehabilitate them in virtue of, in, in view of virtuous activity, so that you can still find the teleology of the the actions of human dignity present in that form of punishment. You can't, I think, in torture. So let's take a moment and and, and thank Paul Thomas Joseph for. His-